You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to be studying today the end of the chapter, beginning in verses 24 through 32. And as I mentioned, this is one of the, I think, grimmest passages of, of Scripture that you'll find in the Bible. The uh, words of Paul here were uh, provocative and controversial in his own day, just as they are in our day. Uh, and, and we should add that it should be our conviction that though uh, these words may offend modern sensibilities, uh, nevertheless, these are the true and eternal words of God. Isaiah said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And if we find that our view does not line up uh, with the Bibles, we need to remind ourselves that it is not the Bible that needs to be adjusted, but our view as we humble ourselves uh, before God and His word. In this passage, Paul is explaining to us why the gospel is so necessary, and uh, it is Uh, Verse 17, verse 18, because we are unrighteous before God, uh, because we have suppressed the truth about Him. And verse 18, uh, as a result, the wrath of God is being revealed. And then we pick up our text in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity we've had to worship you through song. And we pray now that we would continue worshiping you by being attentive to your word. And so please give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive what you would have to say to us. And Lord, I pray that you would use me as your instrument, I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, the assessment that Paul gives here of humanity is one that is not often heard today. In fact, I think if you ask people generally just, do you think man is basically good? Do you think man is basically a good person? That most people will answer yes. I think mankind is, is good. But that is not the testimony of God in the Bible. Paul's whole purpose here, beginning in Romans 1.18 and going all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, is to, in his own words, verse, chapter 3, verse 19, to shut proud mouths and to demonstrate to us that all of us, without exception, are guilty before God and by nature condemned by God. And this is of paramount importance uh, if you believe that man is basically good then you're probably going to see that Christianity is simply a nice add-on to your already moral, pretty good life. And uh, you, it will be, help you to feel good about yourself and kind of bolster your own sense of self-righteousness before God as you uh, practice your religion and live and serve others. But if you believe that you are unrighteous, as the Bible says, a sinner facing the wrath of God. And that truth has so penetrated your conscience, your heart, and your mind to the point where your mouth is shut and you cease to defend yourself. And in the courtroom of God, you simply raise your hand and say, I am guilty and lost. Only then are we beginning to understand the good news of the gospel. And it's why Paul begins here. I want you to notice three things, uh, three headings today that we're going to look at. Three foolish exchanges, three divine abandonments, and then three words of hope. First, three foolish exchanges. You'll find them there in verse 23, 25, and 26. Verse 23 says, they exchanged... The glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Uh, Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, they exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Why is the wrath of God being revealed, as verse 18 says? It is because instead of allowing the knowledge of God, which has been placed in man's conscience and also revealed to us in creation through general revelation to lead us to worship Him, that man has suppressed that truth about God. Neither glorifying God or giving thanks for God. And instead, he has become futile, the text says, in his thinking, darkened in his heart, and so darkened, in fact, that he makes these incredible exchanges. The first one we, we touched on last week, it's really at the root of depravity, though, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images. Paul's talking there about idolatry. Idolatry is when we put something in the place of God so that that something gets our worship, it gets our love, it gets our commitment and our affection rather than God. 
And we might picture here idols that uh, are animals engraved on totem poles, but we should not be fooled that idols come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes and forms. It was uh, the reformer uh, Calvin who said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. That in our sinfulness, we're always looking for something to replace God. We bounce from one to the next, and it could be money or power or sex or popularity or a relationship or a sport or whatever uh, it is, anything that possesses our hearts more than God, anything that we love more than God, anything that we fear more than God. Anything that we value more than God is, is an idol. An idol can be something good that has taken the place of God in your life. And we exchange the glory of God, Paul says, for the glory of created things. You know, to do that, you have to exchange the truth about God for a lie. You have to suppress His greatness in your own mind and heart, His transcendence, His beauty, His power, his glory for the lie that there is something greater than God that is worthy of your worship. And you can be sure that when you make that exchange, that your life will begin to descend into moral and relational chaos. God's judgment will cause, he says, some to exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to, to nature. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in, in a moment. But in general, I think it's reminding us that you, as you move further and further away from God's design, away from His created order, into your own designs, into your, your own uh, created orders, it will lead to moral and relational chaos in your life. The consequences, in other words, of a disordered worship leads to disordered desires that are, are corrupt and sinful, which leads to disordered relationships and moral confusion and brokenness. Right from the beginning here, we see that it is Paul's contention that man is not even close to being naturally or basically good. Because of his sinful nature, it is inherent in all of us to suppress God, to make these exchanges, to exchange the glory of God for created things, to exchange the truth about Him for a lie, to worship and serve created things, and as a result, to morally and relationally wreck our lives. Now, you may be sitting here today, and maybe you've made some of those exchanges, and you're thinking to yourself, well, preacher, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm pretty happy in my sin right now. Just be warned. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. When Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed, he is not just reminding us of the coming day of wrath, the future, God's judgment in the last day, but he's reminding us of a wrath that is being revealed even now. It is being revealed. If only we could have eyes to see this in our lives, to see the wreckage and the carnage of our own choices as we begin to reject God and go down this path. 
If you do not see this, pray for this in your own life. Ferguson writes this, we can casually exchange God for trivialities in our lives and begin to see moral and spiritual disintegration. We don't love Him as we ought. We're not energized by Him. We fit Him into our little pockets and and we say to God, now behave in there, you domesticated God. And we suppress Him. Now Paul says in response to that that you need to know that there is a divine activity that is happening. And it may not be apparent to you right away. But there are in fact three divine abandonments that are happening. They're found in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. It's in the phrase, God gave them up. And you see it three times in those verses. God gave them up, paradidomai. It means to hand over to judgment. To the sinful man, this, their actions may feel like freedom. You know, I've, look at me, I've gotten rid of God. I'm doing what I want to do. I've gotten away with this. But at the end of the day, this is not an expression of freedom from God, but it's actually an expression of being under the judgment of God. This is God giving sinners over to their own sin. This is uh, to someone who is refusing uh, to say to God in, in their sinfulness, uh, thy will be done. I'm refusing that. This is God saying to them, okay, then your will be done. I'm going to give you over to your sins. God gave them up, Paul says. And other than the final judgment in which sinners are cast into hell, I would argue, uh, others as well, that this uh, is the worst thing that could happen to a sinner. The worst thing, God giving you up. To be allowed, in other words, to go on sinning without any divine restraints. God just removing His hand of conviction, letting you go down the path. He's abandoning the sinner to his own, her own sinful impulses. I want us to look at each one individually. The first one, verse 24, God gave them up to sexual impurity. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. The word impurity there refers to sexual immorality. Uh, It's the same word that's found in Galatians 5.19 which says, now the works of the flesh are evident. So they're not works of the spirit, but works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. This is a word that kind of covers every category of sexual deviation. In other words, that which deviates from God's created order and design. And God has given a created order and design, hasn't He? All the way back in in Genesis, we read that in God's uh, created order that sexual intimacy is reserved for a husband and a wife. In the context of marriage, the covenant of marriage. Sex is a beautiful gift of God to husband and wife. And so the word impurity here includes every deviation from that design. Every deviation that is not in that. It covers everything, frankly, from pornography 
to adultery, to uh, sex before you're married, to things that are improper to mention, I think, in public. All kinds of deviation. God, it says God gives this rebellious man over to an unclean mind in the lust of his impurity, and it leads him to dishonor his body in sexual sin. You may remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 designates sexual sin as a unique category into itself. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And to make that clear, Paul says a few verses earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10, that those who practice sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. When Paul says that God abandoned them in the lust of their hearts to impurity, he means they are descending downward from bad to worse. The strong desire of lust leads to sensual acts of impurity. They are plunging lower and lower to a deeper involvement in wickedness. Notice, secondly, God gave them up to shameful perversions. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Boy, this is quite a provocative text, isn't it? And it's one that you don't hear very often today. But when Paul wants to describe the, the radical corruption of the human race, he views the sin of homosexual behavior as the sin that is most representative of depravity. He's not saying, I don't think, that everyone who rejects God becomes attracted to the opposite sex. He's not saying that that is necessarily the case, but that this, is, this particular sin describes society's rejection of God in one of the most clearest ways. You know, for centuries, these matters were hardly spoken of publicly. Although, certainly, no doubt, people were practicing these sins, homosexual sins, for uh, for a long time, they were considered so reprehensible that a moral person just avoided mentioning them in public conversation. But now we see these sins are highlighted with parades, aren't they? And they are uh, on most television shows that you turn on in your home, most sitcoms, they're on commercials. Uh, all of the time uh, being glorified. They're starting to show up in cartoons. And public schools have included it in, in uh, starting at least places in, the, in some places in our country in their curriculum. Uh, 
that which the Apostle Paul notes here very clearly as not just a sin and not just a serious or gross sin, but the clearest expression of the depths of depravity. And this is celebrated in our society today. Why is the sin of homosexuality one of the clearest expressions of perversity? I think Paul tells us in verse 26, he says, it's because they exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Once again, the word nature uh, is not, uh, is referring to not, not what comes natural, it's, it's referring, I think, to God's created order of things. His created order, God's original intention, right? In Genesis, He created them male and female. And He uh, said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife in marriage, and they will become one flesh. Other sins are evil in God's eyes. But, but homosexual behavior, and, and let's be honest, transsexual behavior, and all of the, the letters that go uh, with that, are unique in the sense, Paul says, because they are contrary to God's created design. They're contrary to the natural order of things. The, in, in other words, what lies behind these sins is an, an assault on creation itself, and an assault on the Creator, the one who, who made us. They're suppressing the truth about God and undermining God's created order of things like the institutions of marriage and family. And so Paul's point here is to show us that the consequences, once again, of a disordered worship where we've suppressed God and exchanged the truth about Him for a lie, it leads to disordered desires, and disordered desires lead to disordered relationships and sometimes of a perverse kind. Up to this point, Paul's been saying that the abandonment of God is part of the judgment of sins now, where God punishes you by giving you over, letting you do what you want. But notice Paul speaks of a specific judgment here. He says at the end of verse 27, they receive in themselves the due penalty of their error. He seems to be reminding us that this sin will have consequences. It does and it will have consequences. Un unnatural sins will have a particular consequence. He doesn't tell us what it is. But, but we need to remind ourselves again of 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, the end of verse 10, will inherit the kingdom of God. There's just no politically correct way to say these things or to put a spin on shameless perversity. But, but it's not uh, the end of the down, downward spiral. Notice the third God gave them up uh, to a depraved mind. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are 
gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I think it's important to note here that a debased mind or depraved mind is different in verse 21 when he talks about feudal thinking and a darkened heart. Paul is not just writing about any sinful mind, but a depraved mind. God gave them over to a debased mind. And, and, and that mind has been created by, I think, continually going down this path for a long time of suppressing God. For a long time, they've suppressed him. They've embraced their own sin. And now God has given them over, he says, to a a debased mind. And it means there that they're really no longer capable of of making moral uh, kinds of decisions or or godly kind of decisions. They they make insane choices that they would have never made otherwise as they sink deeper and deeper into sin. God is giving them over to their sinful desires, and it's heartbreaking. When we read this text, church, and we read this list here, I I hope that you saw some of yourself there as I did, because again, we are fooling ourselves if we think that man is basically good. Paul is teaching that sinful man is not merely tainted a little bit by unrighteousness, but he is rather filled with it, right? Verse 29, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness. 21 sins are are mentioned. And and there's no doubt this is not a full list, but a representative list, as Paul taught in chapter 3, verse 19, to stop every mouth and convict every conscience. Such a list does not mean that every individual is equally guilty of every sin. I don't think that's what he is saying. But it does signify the depths of depravity that underneath all of us, these sins lurking underneath the surface are a part of our sinful nature. And if we were left to ourselves, if God turned us over, this could be us. And they're everywhere with us in society. If we were to put this list alongside our newspapers, we would see everything that Paul mentions here. He is describing a society that has refused God. And as they refuse to give God the rightful place He deserves in their lives, God abandons them to this moral tailspin because they reject God, He rejects them. And there's a a finality in which Paul speaks of here. Notice this depravity, this debased mind leads people to the point where they, the only way they can, it seems, silence their own consciences because it says that they know the truth. But the only way they can silence it is by dragging others into their sin. Maybe they think that there is safety in numbers when it comes to the wrath of God. Though, he says, they know God's righteous decree, verse 32, they know it, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's as if Paul is saying, if you persist in this way, the time comes when the only thing you can do is to try to quiet your own conscience, your own guilt before God, to get others to sin with you. 
and to approve of others' sins, to be supported by the crowds who call good evil and evil good. And don't we see that happening today, friends, in our society? Let's normalize sinful behavior. Let's put it on the TV and commercials so that the perversion and sin just becomes of a normal part of our, our lives. But make no mistake, again, Paul is saying that those who practice such things deserve to die. He will later say in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. And this is the second death, eternal perishing in hell. Well, let me give you three words of hope. And my guess is you would like to hear three words of hope. I'm so thankful there's hope. Amen? Um, There's no doubt that what Paul is describing here to me is true of our own society and, and world. And we could ask deeper questions of this text. Can any nation survive without God? I don't think so. Can any society function without acknowledging the moral laws of God? I don't, I don't think so. Can any, and cult, can any culture endure without the restraint of the law of God? Again, I don't think so. But is there any hope? Yes, there's hope, church. I want to share with you three words of hope. First, first word of hope is the word for, back up in verse 18. For. The wrath of God is being real. The word for reminds us of what was just said. What was just said right before this? You you remember, I hope, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is the good news, church. Paul knows that the gospel is more powerful That the gospel can turn hearts away from stubborn idolatry and the gospel can turn hearts away from immorality. It is so powerful that it can take unrighteous sinners and transform them into righteous saints. This is why the gospel is so precious and necessary. Paul will explain in Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified or saved by His blood, Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That is good news, church. One commentator put it well, Salvation is not rescuing the sinner from a meaningless existence. It is not delivering him from a bad job. It is not saving him from having personal insecurities. It is not saving him from being unhappy with himself. It is saving him from God. And there's only one who can save from God, and that is God himself. Salvation is God's grace saving us from his wrath. That's the gospel. And this great salvation, as you know, was accomplished through the life and death of his son, Jesus Christ. Here's a second word of hope. It's in the phrase, God gave them up. Paradidomai. We read it three times. God handed them over to judgment. I am so thankful that's not the last time Paul uses that word. 
He uses it in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, speaking of Jesus, he says, who was delivered up. There's the word. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, our salvation. He uses it again, Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He, speaking of God, who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up. There's the word. He gave him up for us all. Friends, the the good news of the gospel is that God delivered his son, Jesus, over to judgment. He handed Jesus over, not for his sin, but for our sin. Jesus was delivered over into the most stringent judgment imaginable for our sins upon the cross. He suffered the full force of God's wrath on the cross as he died in the place of sinners so that those who would turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus, they would not have to face the wrath of God. Those who trust in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Amen, church? Are you feeling more hopeful now? There's hope for the sinner who trusts Christ. One more word of hope. Those who trust him, the Bible teaches, will be transformed by him. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 6 a couple of times, and I want to close by reading it more fully. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous, which is all of us, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In in other words, he's very plain. The unrighteous will not go to heaven. Is there any hope? No. That's the first answer, that, those verses. There's no hope, but none of these people, he says, who are practicing these things, none of the unrighteous will enter the kingdom of God. That, that's his, his first answer, but it's not his final answer. Because <laughs> here's what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. What words of hope. If you're here today and you find yourself in in Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6 and you are spiraling downward, there is hope. If you are struggling with homosexual desires of some kind or behaviors, there is hope. Homosexuality is not a sickness, it is a sin. And and that ought to be very encouraging to you because there's a lot of sicknesses that don't have a cure. But I tell you what, there is a remedy for sin, church. It is the gospel. Some of the Corinthians were previously idolaters. Previously. They used to be. They were at one time adulterers, men who practice homosexuality. He continues in verse 11, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. They were changed. 
Jesus Christ gives us hope, and it doesn't matter whether you're a thief or an adulterer or a homosexual. He can change us, and he has promised to do so in his gospel. He does not promise that the struggle will be easy. He does not promise that he's going to carry us on a bed of roses all the way to heaven and everything is going to be hunky-dory. He, he, he's not saying it's going to be easy, but what he is saying is that God's grace, by God's grace, it is possible because there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in your life, and that is good news. But you need to stop the direction that you're going in. And you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Will you do that? If you hear his voice today and you are sensing something of the conviction of your sin, something of your need for forgiveness, that is God working in you. That is him speaking to you, and it is a grace that this is happening. Do not put off responding to that. Do not suppress the truth, but cry out to him in faith. This God who says the wrath of God is being revealed, this is this can be a God of, of grace if you will confess your sin and Put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. He can save you. He will save you. Will you? Heavenly Father, these are difficult words, but they are your words, not the opinions of man. And we thank you for this. Thank you that you've not left us in the darkness to, to figure this out, but that you have given us light, the light of your Son, Jesus Christ, who went to that cross and died in our place and rose again. And now he invites us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him too. For those who are hearing that call today, may we all respond in obedience to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.